So Lisa, were you able to catch the interview that Oprah did with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle this week? I wasn't able to catch it, although I have heard a lot about it from uh, my British family who apparently, um, you know, are reveling in the fact that it's on the news all the time and all of this feigned fain, mm. shock at uh, <laughs> right. Meghan's um, disclosures, right? Like, mm. like surprising. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I thought it was interesting to watch. I mean, I've been following royals for a long time, all the way back to Lady Diana, of course. But um, this one was challenging in a number of different ways. I think um, I was just sitting there thinking, not not in shock at all, but just thinking through what it means to fit in a certain society, culture, system, what have you, versus adding to the system. And so to me, I was just really wrestling with that. But I, I'm, I'm with your, your folks. You know, I, <laughs> I heard nothing shocking at all, but it really um, kind of poked my brain into thinking in a different direction about systems. So I thought we'd want to talk about that today. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, Lisa, I spend a lot of time working with professors and other organizations, uh, not completely in a human resources space, but just thinking about human beings and who is in the organization and who is not in the organization and how to get them there. And one of the things that I kept thinking as I was listening to Oprah's masterful interview of Meghan Markle and then later Prince Harry comes in, I was just thinking about how systems sometimes uh, because they want to perpetuate what's already been there for years, they miss opportunities to add to their organization. You know, I kind of think about Jim Collins' book, Moving from Good to Great, is that even if an organization is good, they still could add to the perspectives, to the solutions. They could add a lot if they diversified, but they're just really busy clinging on to, oh, well, this is good enough. And so I just thought it was really interesting that all of that played out in the interview uh, with right. Oprah, Megan, and Harry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and the royal family is quite the system, right? Mm -hmm. Royalty in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm not particularly interested in them. Um, I do mm -hmm. remember where I was when Princess Diana died, though. So um, yes, yes. Uh, that's something that's sat with me, but, and for her too, right. It was an, it was a question of fit. Like she didn't conform mm -hmm. to what they had hoped, um, you know, a princess would be, you know, husband having an affair and she was just, just, just supposed to sit and take that, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and Megan's story is different obviously because it, um, revolves around race more so, but it is striking, the parallel between Diana and Megan, I thought really that kind of came to the surface. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms like the fit, you know, the fit versus ad, like I don't think the Royal family as an institution 
um, which I think that's what she called it, right? She called it like, or like, mm-hmm. she made it sound like the mafia. What was the term that she Oh, used? it was the, uh, the firm was one word she used for it. So the firm or calm, it was a lot of different acronyms mm. they were kind of using, but the firm was the one it seemed like she used more often than Yeah. Not. So that was, that was just interesting, like from an kind of outside looking in, but you know, when, you know, Harry proposed and she said yes, and she was going to be you know, the first woman of color, person of color in the royal family, I'm thinking, oh, this isn't, this isn't going to go well, you know, just because it's so steeped in whiteness, like Mm -hmm. dripping, Mm -hmm. dripping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, (laughs) that's what made it so interesting just seeing it all play out is that, you know, Lisa, you, you actually are sounding like you already heard (laughs) the interview (laughs) because, you know, that was one of kind of the spoilers of the entire interview was that, you know, Prince Harry said it himself. He didn't feel shocked. It didn't seem, but he felt like it was a missed opportunity to have her demonstrate so many um, areas of, uh, that were contrary to the monarchy to this point, whether it's being a person of color or whether it's being a divorcee or whether it's being someone who's been very outspoken for women, lots of things that she, um, she was a model of for years trying to know having her own money for goodness sake. I mean, you know, and then coming in that way, I think that's what was very interesting to me that he picked up on the ad piece versus the fit piece in the Mm. conversation. He named it. And so, you know, I think all of that was really interesting to me. Nothing shocking at all, but it was very interesting that he hit the nail on the head with the hit, the, the fit versus the ad uh, concept. And, but you're right. It's an entire system that has prided itself on not adding <laughs> let, let, right. let's keep it right, right where we are here let's yep. maintain and we're going to fight tooth and nail to maintain what we have including colonization and go, go down the list yeah I mean I've just seen you know the clips that was it I don't know ABC or CBS you know they would like tease it so I saw the, the most kind of like shocking clips with you know Oprah you know really what? But so, you know, you could piece together those, <laughs> those elements. And I read a couple of articles, so I probably will come around to watching the whole thing. But what's funny about what you're saying to me is knowing Harry, I mean, I don't know Harry, like he's not my friend, but, you know, growing up with him mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. a, as an, not an icon, but as someone who's, you know, in the public eye. And then obviously the very public death of his mom, um, he is not known or was not known as being a particularly quote unquote woke individual when it came to racism, sexism, Mm -hmm. those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. I mean, he is um, on record of using racial slurs, I I believe. Um, And, you know, he was in the military, I think in the UK. Uh, Not that that is synonymous with using racial slurs. I don't mean that, but it's Mm -hmm. again that very kind of stiff upper lip whiteness institutional, um, we, we conquer others, right? So it is, it's so curious to me then what you're saying is that he is noticing he's a part of the system and in many ways has perpetuated it. And Mm -hmm. yet he is now able to step outside of it and say, hmm, what are you, you're missing out here. Like you've made an egregious error and I see this differently. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Making an egregious error. And I think part of it uh, is, and again, I'm like you, he's not my, my BFF by any stretch of the imagination, but I have been following for a while. Um, I do think what's interesting is that you're exactly right. And he names that, that um, 
he was he stated he was trapped in the system and didn't even realize he was trapped and that Megan saved him from being trapped. That's one piece. Um, And then the other piece, going back to your parallel with uh, Lady Diana, is that he from a mental health perspective and, you know, uh, we could say some of it was obviously exacerbated by racial issues and concerns, but you know, he saw a parallel situation possibly happening with Megan that please don't think that these two dots are far apart from one another. They are quite parallel. And if I don't do something, then something similar that happened to his mother could happen to his wife. And so he was very clear on that in the interview. And so I think that's, what's interesting too, is that yes, this wokeness has occurred and, you know, but I think that's curious too. And I know this whole statement is going to sound very judgmental, but I do think there's a different arc of awakening for white folks who then are very intimately understanding of a person of color's lived experience every day. And so, you know, I I think there's, and and I'm not saying that they understand all of it, but they are witnessing it. They're witnessing not only what's happening, but the impacts of it. So it's one thing to say, oh, I have a best friend who is fill in the blank. And you very tangentially, if at all, know what they're experiencing on a day-to-day versus a person like Prince Harry, who is living with the person that he loves, who is experiencing things on a day-to-day basis, and he is looking at dead in the face, and he's looking at his first child dead in the face and having very clear racialized experiences right in his face. Like, yeah. would, would you yeah. really want to be a parent? And I, I am one, but would you really want to be a parent who realizes that, oh, the world is wondering how dark my child is going to be when, when he or she is born, when they are born. So that's interesting that we're not concerned about the health of the mother and the child. We're concerned about skin color. Right. And when you're intimately hearing that and intimately involved with that, then that's a little bit different from second, third, fourth, fifth hand. Yeah. And I would imagine white people in her periphery um, who are kind of drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, um, probably would have gaslighted her around that. Right. Oh, you're overreacting. That's not what they meant. Oh, they I could totally see that. So then, yeah. you know, ha- and yeah. Harry, as a as a non-partner of Meghan, like as an observer, may have even participated in that gaslighting. So to your point, mm-hmm. his intimacy mm-hmm. with her and him seeing um, and actually hearing the comments, right? Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. That really jolted him, I think. Mm-hmm. At least that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I, I do think it jolted him, and and I also think <laughs> I, I'm going to I'm going to speak very clearly from a American positionality, but also as a black female positionality. I just had this conversation with a friend of mine. Is that Megan? is so fair skinned within the African-American community that that she could pass for white if people didn't know who she was and didn't know her background. And so to me, I think it's, it's not surprising, but I still continue to think it's laughable that there's all of this almost panic around colorism and she's on the fairer end of the African-American community. Like when I think about, um, I I saw this meme on Facebook, this was last week when the interviews were going on and it was a, it was like a side-by-side picture of two children. One side of it was, (laughs) was actually Archie himself, obviously a fair skinned child right now, you know, skin tone and color can change over time, but right now he's, he's fair skinned. And it said um, what black people see 
the fair-skinned Archie. And on the other side was an extremely dark-skinned child. And it was, the heading said, this is what the monarchy sees, right? So, mm-hmm. and and I've noticed that, and I'm, I'm going to actually call us out on this too, Lisa, even as we were, um, you know, pulling together, I don't know if you remember this, when we were pulling together the artwork, even for this podcast, and yeah. we were kind of figuring out, you know, what did we want the visual to look like? And the first couple of drafts of even our avatars of this podcast, I shared with a couple of my really close friends to say, hey, what do y'all think? I think the coloring is a little bit too dark. And this is no indictment of anyone in particular, just simply saying that if you are used to being around people of color, it lands on you differently than someone who doesn't see or Mm. actually see or engage with people of color on a regular basis. So even I was depicted a couple of shades darker than I actually am in person or how I'm perceived by other people of color in my community. And so it happens. And so it just, it kind of brings me back to that fit versus add. If you are not, if you're in a system that is very used to either not seeing someone or not seeing groups based on who they actually are, then yes, it's going to be challenging. And I think it happens in endurance sport all the time. We see who we want to see, not who we should see, who is everybody. And so therefore we continue to repeat who's Mm -hmm. already in versus who could add. Yeah. um, I think that's a great illustration of the point, right? In the terms of what we perceive um, and what is actually the reality. I think that is playing all the time in um, all of our, um, all parts of our lives, but it does play Mm. out in endurance sport as well. And I think about as endurance sport technology has grown, um, kind of, you know, exploded even over the last decade or so with all of these new options, um, you know, online workout tracking, um, you know, tools to measure power, um, cadence, like all of these, um, gadgets and the, you know, accompanying companies that have this kind of, they, they project this like fun, edgy, cool, um, we're a great place to work, um, vibe and, and maybe they are a great place to work. Like, I don't know. Right. But when we think about the fit versus ad in that context, I think it becomes really interesting because the first time I ever thought about fit was in a employment context Um, We were interviewing for someone and I think someone around the table had said, I'm not sure this person fits. I don't even remember the identities of the person. Um, And that was when it was first kind of brought to my attention in that discussion that we use the term this we'll use the phrase. This person doesn't really fit as a means to exclude individuals um, who are are not represented already in the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's. And what I think is interesting is, okay, Lisa, so how do we challenge that as we attempt to call people into conversation rather than the defensiveness that we usually get? So if you and I were on a search committee looking to hire somebody for our organization and you as a white person would say, uh, or, or if you did say, oh, well, this person doesn't fit, then how do I gracefully say, can you explain a bit more as to what fit means for you? Right. Because I think fit means different things. And when people I I think we're kind of caught red handed when we ask the question, what do you mean by fit? And the person can't answer the damn question. Then that tells me that, oh, I'm looking for myself and I don't see them here. Yes. 
so, you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking for creative ways to interrupt the thought Mm -hmm. because sometimes it's, sometimes it's kind of parlayed into, they don't fit the culture of the organization. Well, what is the culture of the organization? Well, they don't fit this department. Well, what is this department like usually? And so, you know, I think we have to kind of, that might be our homework for next week is thinking through how do we interrupt those conversations of fit that don't seem to have deep roots. Right. So, so for example, Mm -hmm. if, if there's, if there's a characteristic of fit, for example, that cuts across all different identity groups, let's have that conversation versus saying this person simply does not reflect me. So, you know, if the organization is known for being um, socially conscious and this person does not show a track record of being socially conscious, well, that could cut across identity groups. But if I say fit and I'm thinking, white or male or some industries, white and female. And when I'm asked about fit and I can't answer the damn question, then we need to think about what the culture is and what culture we want to perpetuate versus the culture we don't want to perpetuate. Yeah. Like when people respond to the, what is it that you mean by fit? Or what does that mean to you with a, I'm just getting a feeling. It's just a feeling that I'm having. It's a hunch. It's a hunch. That's like such (laughs) bullshit. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good tool to offer people. If you're in a search committee, whether you're a small organization or a big organization, right. And someone around the table, whether it's, you know, you and one other person says, "Ah, I just don't, I'm getting a vibe. I just don't really feel like they fit. You know, how can you gently um, probe with curiosity about what fit means to them to try and pin them Mm -hmm. down um, and perhaps uncover a bias they don't even realize they have. Right, right, exactly. So, for example, if I'm in an organization and the person that interviews is a woman, for example, and I say this person doesn't fit, let's have a conversation about the bias that I carry because maybe I've only worked for men as my supervisors. And so, based on my lived experience, that person doesn't fit into the systems that I'm now used to, but they would add to it. So, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. thinking through that in a graceful way, I think is important. And so, you know, that's why I think, you know, we really need to think long and hard about that process. And also, too, one of the things I've found to be a really important, you know, ground zero step in these conversations is exactly what you just mentioned around start out with identifying your biases. Like, take a look, you know, look at what identity groups you usually uh, leave out or the identities that you rarely think about start to, you know, or you do think about, but you have some type of negative connotation with that group, whatever that may be, start out with those biases. And from there, that's when you, you don't know how to course correct if you don't know what direction you're going in. So if you know you lean towards men and the organization is very male dominated, thank you. Now I can course correct towards folks that are not men and think about how I want to incorporate them as far as adding to the system mm-hmm. um, when I have the opportunity. Yeah. So if you have these conversations when you're thinking about hiring, hiring and expanding your business or replacing someone who left, or oh, that's something, if you're replacing someone who left and the person that left has a particular set of identities mm, and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, yep. this person isn't as good as blank. Right. And right, you're constantly right. measuring the, the new, um, the new potential employee against the person that left. And the person that left is like a white straight male or, right, you right. know, a white straight female or, or an able-bodied person. Right. And so then you're, mm-hmm. you're creating a standard that simply perpetuates the status quo. Right. Um, right. 
Mm-hmm. Let's say the conversation is had and a person is brought into the organization um, and that because that people are thinking we want to add, we don't just want to replicate, we want to add, right? We want to diversify. Right. Right. So then what about when, um, you know, a system doesn't bend for that person, but puts an expectation out either explicitly or implicitly that the new person has to conform to the system or the organizational culture? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And see, I look, I, it's been interesting. I've been having this uh, thought with a bunch of people over the last month or so. I think that's when we need to be honest with ourselves, right? Because I'm, how many years have you and I both been doing this work? And as much as I spent my earlier years kind of trying to change minds and proselytize people, you know, and, and in fact, did it to the detriment of people who are already on board with this type of work. I think now is our opportunity to uh, call out and call in at the same time. So if Lisa's organization says they want to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion, but on every opportunity, the organization doesn't change the policy or doesn't change the procedure or doesn't uh, create more um, entry points for people to add to the organization, then let's stop saying that DEI is a priority. Let's say we don't want to be interested in DEI work and we choose to continue the club organization that we've always had where there's certain people that fit and other people that don't have access to us. Let's just name that because I would rather, you know, it, it's not even performative at that point, Lisa, in my opinion, it's not even performative. It's kind of a checklist of things. Well, DEI is in vogue right now, or DEI is really sexy. And so let's figure out a way to look as if we're, uh, we want to add to the organization when every sign is telling us that we don't want to add. Because we just have to really be honest with ourselves and say, no, we don't want to add. Because my, my fear then becomes, and this is another question that we may not have the answer to, is that if we continue to say we want to be an inclusive organization, whether it's endurance sport, whether it's business, what have you, if we keep saying we want to be inclusive, but every policy, protocol, procedure, climate, spoken, unspoken, says otherwise, now we're starting to put people in harm's way because we're pretending to be something we're not interested in being. Right. And so I'm not interested in putting people in harm's way. So I would rather you say, no, we just want to be a bunch of white males in this organization. I would rather you just say that than to say you want to be something else. And then you happen to entice someone. You may happen to hire one or two folks who end up being tokenized. They end up turning around leaving anyway. You know, that's when we start having this revolving door situation going on. So I, I wonder what it would mean for organizations to simply be authentic to where they want to put their investment. Mm-hmm. Because I think some are not authentic at all. Not yeah, it is lip I, service. I, yeah, I don't think that you're going to have the average organization that is run by a um, a group of people that all all look the same, saying we do not want to have different people in our organization. Like that level of honesty and authenticity is going to be only behind closed doors. Right? Exactly. Um, exactly. So, and so then you have the situation where you perhaps have an only right. So you have an only one woman only one person of color, only one woman of color, right? Only one person who uses a wheelchair. And that puts an extreme amount of pressure on that individual because like you mentioned with the tokenism, they then get kind of thrust into this position of having to quote unquote represent their group, right? To prove that it's worth hiring 
there's more of them, right? Because I do really fit. I do really fit into your organization. Um, and then that leads to the burnout and then the people leave, right? Which just kind of like reinforces the initial perhaps thought behind closed door thought that we're not going to right. diversify. We shouldn't diversify. It would be detrimental to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. It would be detrimental to us. And so you're right. That, that gets into the tokenism piece. And for those who aren't clear, and please, Lisa, add to my working definition here, but you know, with tokenism, for those that aren't aware, it's simply being kind of perfunctory or symbolic. It's just a gesture that one person is in place. And so that's when you hear of organizations that, let's say, I was just telling Lisa about this earlier, organizations that have maybe 10 people on their board, and they may hire one woman or one person of color or one uh, differently abled person, and then all magically, they're quote unquote, diverse, because they have the one person. That's a token. That's a person that is symbolic. Um, and, And I think it. Um, sometimes it, it, uh, is meant to help with some of the guilt. (laughs) It's kind of like, oh, well, we have one of each of this, so we're good. Right. Like it, it it goes back to what RBG said before. It's like, "Mm, not until we have all women up in here, will we truly be inclusive because we've had all men forever. And I know I'm completely butchering her quote, but it's the same thought of, wait a minute, one is not enough. One has never been enough. Um, and, and I have a, a committee I'm sitting on right now, and I had a, a wonderful, wonderful faculty member of mine who recently rotated off of the committee. And at first we thought about it, it's five people and all of them are women. And he's been wonderfully outspoken about inclusion and, and excellence. He's um, North African um, descent. And he said, Shauna, I have no problem with all women being on this damn committee because for years it was all men anyway. So go forth. I'm here as a support to you. Very few men would say that. Very few people in the majority would say that and give thumbs up and, and empower in that way. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming from a place of overcompensation necessarily, but we do need to couch context kind of going back to um, Megan and Prince Harry, what has been centuries of context that needs to be corrected, adjusted, addressed, acknowledged, let's not act like it didn't happen. There's a lot of history behind all this. Yeah. And I, you know, I obviously for Megan and Harry, um, they didn't perform in the way that they were supposed to, they didn't fit, they didn't change their behavior to fit into the system. So they left. Right. Um, and that, you know, brings us to today in terms of their most recent interview and the response from the Royal family of their leaving. And I just think about to your point, um, around the context, the historical context, and I'm thinking about sport and I'm thinking about gender, which we're not going to get into today, but uh, certainly will be a conversation. And that sport since the beginning of time, right, has been broken into two genders, uh, man and woman. Well, and at least initially mm-hmm. it was basically just men, right? Because women right. weren't allowed to participate. Right. Um, right. And so it's absolutely entrenched that system. So then when we talk about fit for trans people, non-binary people, the expectation is for them to participate in sport. They have to change who they are, right? Because the system is so rigidly stuck and is really resisting changing. Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I always think about that in my mind as um, the analogy of the pretzel. It's like, I have to bend over backwards. I have to twist myself out of proportion in order to fit in your system. And I still don't fit at the end of that day. 
And so, you know, what does it mean to continue to twist yourself, whether it's, and there's so many different ways to twist yourself, whether it's, you know, okay, which box do I check when it comes to male or female, or, um, you know, if I wear hijab, well, which one is most appropriate, because I have to send 17 emails just to be able to race, or, you know, all these different ways, code switching, you know, where we need to change language um, for a short period of time in order to so-called fit into an organization. That is to me like this pretzeling where you're twisting yourself up and never truly fitting, but still trying to assimilate in ways that once again, make the system more comfortable and making ourselves Mm -hmm. increasingly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, So do we really want to do that? I mean, Megan said, basically flat out, Megan and Harry both have said, I'm not willing to to twist myself up into a pretzel for this monarchy. So we're leaving. Bye. And so when I think about translation into endurance sport, I always question how many people left or never came because they were not interested in twisting themselves into this pretzel of, I can't fit your system. You've made it so staunch that it just doesn't work for me. And, And it may never work for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really great point. Um, and you know, there's a, a really good, um, video online that you can search and it's by Pixar and it's called Pearl. Um, and it's about, mm, it's mm-hmm. a, so it's a computer gra- computer generated cartoon thing. That is not the correct way to describe it, but it's basically this ball of wool, this pink ball of wool that gets a job. And, um, they, I don't know the ball of wool's gender, um, are the only one ball of wool in the organization. And it kind of tracks their experience and it really speaks to the fit versus ad um, piece. Oh, I I love that. You know, if, if listeners now are kind of like, chewing on this and maybe it's not clear enough or Mm -hmm. they just need some, you know, you want some extra information, then Google Pixar's Pearl Mm -hmm. diversity. And I bet it will come up. It's really, I think it's really illustrative of what we've been talking about today. Oh, and it's spelled P-U-R-L, everybody. That, yeah, I just pulled it up just a second ago. That's, that, that might appear in some of my uh, search trainings for people who don't get the fit versus ad situation. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's pretty cool. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's, it's something to really consider. And, you know, again, it's the, who are we centering? We, we talk about this a lot. Who are we centering? Are we centering the organization or are we centering the people that we want to be, we say we want to be a part yeah. of the organization? Who are we centering here? Yeah. Um, Megan definitely was not centered at all. The crown was centered. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder sometimes if we do that with endurance sport that, you know, the original purist, non-inclusive experience of triathlon um, is centered rather than a larger market that could be centered Mm -hmm. um, to keep the sport alive. I I don't Mm. know. Well, this is a discussion for another day, but purist right? The way we think about purist and kind of uh, Mm -hmm. how that that terminology is utilized in sport and in other contexts and what does it really mean and the judgment that's associated with it, right? In terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, like I'm a purist, right? As Mm -hmm. in like you're somehow better than. That's kind of right thing. But we'll put a pin in that. Yes. um, Because I think we've perhaps uh, given you a lot to think about this week. So hopefully um, you can relate this to the work that you do in endurance sport, whether you are a coach or a business owner or an athlete. 
Absolutely. And if you want to talk a little bit more about this, don't forget, we still have our Facebook private group, Unfazed, Un in brackets, Unfazed podcast. Join us there. We're starting to gain some traction and lots of folks are joining the conversations and we'd be happy to talk more about fit versus ad. And Lisa, I think uh, as I go check out the video or the, the clip of Pearl, I may add that to that space so people can take a look there as well. Hi folks, Sarah here, the founder of Live Feisty Media, the company that produces the podcast you're currently listening to. I just wanted to jump in here and invite you to our latest initiative here at Live Feisty, the Feisty Women's Performance Summit. On March 26th to 28th, we will be serving up a virtual summit like no other, designed specifically for active feisty women or anyone who wants to know how women can get the best out of our bodies throughout our lives. I think we all kind of figured out by now that a lot of sports and nutrition science studies, product and performance research is done on men and are a little confused maybe about what actually applies to us as women. So we collected experts from several arenas, physiology, psychology, nutrition science and social sciences to get some answers. The Feisty Women's Performance Summit includes 20 educational sessions plus networking events, group workouts, and an expo full of supportive brands. I seriously hope you can join us on March 26th to 28th, 2021. Tickets are only $149, and all sessions will be recorded and can be viewed up to two weeks after the event. For more information or to sign up, go to womensperformancesummit.com. The link will be in the show notes, of course. That's womensperformancesummit.com. See you there, feisty friends. The Unfazed Podcasts and all things feisty triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feisty triathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>